This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio. Here's your host, Dan Loney. The Chinese economy and concerns over it have certainly roiled global markets over the last couple of trading days. The Dow Jones Industrial Average was off more than 1,000 points over those last two sessions, and it could have been much worse. But it appears that the fears of traders may be subsiding. Even though the market in Shanghai is down again sharply, as we said, European markets are higher, as well as Wall Street. To dig deeper into this continuing problem, especially over in China, we welcome back our friend Jacques Delisle, who is director for the Center of East Asian Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. And also with us is Peter Conti-Brown, assistant professor of legal studies and business ethics here at Wharton. Jacques, it's been too long. <laughs> yes, it has. <laughs> I joke to, to say about that. Peter, great to have you in the studio for the first time. Thanks for coming in. My pleasure. Uh, for the people that, that don't follow this a, as close, Jacques, what exactly really has been the push behind this shakeup we've basically seen the last couple of days with the global markets? Well, uh, there's the question of what the connection between what's going on in China and global markets are, and I think my colleague may want to speak to that a bit more. But in China, it's uh, the latest in a series of stock market falls, and it's become entangled with the currency devaluation of a couple of weeks ago. And basically, uh, you know, there, there are a lot of concerns with where the Chinese market was. Was it overvalued? And But, but really what's driving it, I think, is a real concern about whether China's growth has slowed in a lasting way and has slowed worse than people expected. Clearly, it was going to drop from double digits to something like the <laughs> 7 7.5% new normal. Problem is, it's been headed toward the low end of that range, and nobody's quite sure it's even going to stay there. And uh, what has been a quite capable and determined state seems to be all thumbs all of a sudden, not quite figuring out what policy response it wants to take and sending some mixed signals. I think that's hurt confidence. Peter? Yeah, I mean, the the consequences are uh, are interesting to think about because for the last several decades, China has emerged as, as almost an alternative to the uh, capitalist democracies of the West and, and to a completely centralized state. And the enthusiasm over China's robust growth has led to this idea, as, as Jacques was just saying, that this state can do it all. They can manage uh, quasi-independently a currency while stimulating growth at extraordinary rates. And these this sell-off and these crashes and the, uh, the People's Bank of China's uh, responses bring some doubt about whether that this this third way is, is, is possible. And one thing to really note is Jack's saying, a new normal, and the, the, the panic that's being caused here is by an adjustment downward that the Chinese economy will grow at 7%. That's <laughs> a staggering figure when compared to uh, the U.S. And, and, and other more developed states. So that kind of adjustment down of expectations for still extraordinarily robust growth, it hints at what we've come to expect from, from the Communist Party and from, from China, and it, come, and it brings into question, well, what then is the future? So then in some respects, what we've seen here in the U.S. with Wall Street the last couple of trading sessions is a little bit of pushing the panic button. I think absolutely trying to understand and, and adjusting this information. If if uh, China, which is uh, the state, uh, has built up several different levers that they can pull, uh, and they're starting to pull them, 
And yeah. the idea was that these were going to be under these buttons, uh, to change my metaphor, would be under glass. And it looks like the glass is <laughs> yeah. broken. Uh, speaking of uh, of movements by uh, the People's Bank and, and over in China, uh, was noted that earlier today they're going to uh, they're going to tip their interest rates a little bit, about a quarter of a percent uh, more cash. They're basically pushing out into the marketplace. How does that really affect what what we could see in the near term in in China? I mean, they still, as you said, have unbelievable growth, but obviously there's an expectation that that they have to be at a, at a different level at this point. Yeah, I, mean, I think part of the concern here is that. To sustain the new normal, which you know seven seven and a half percent is is as Peter says quite good, but is it going to fall below that? And there's a concern that it's been kept at that level through resorting to a lot of the policy tools, right? Yeah. So we've seen, you know, just recently a devaluation of the currency, yeah. which will help exports. We've seen a cut in the interest rate announced by a quarter point announced just yesterday, and we've also seen a drop in the reserve requirements for banks. So these are all classic stimulus tools in many ways. Yeah. The concern is they're already pretty deep into the toolbox. And some of those have bad consequences. So when you devalue the uh, currency, you run the risk of putting some uh, enterprises in China that hold dollar-denominated debt in kind of dire straits. And, uh, and it's not so simple to goose exports in the Chinese economy. I mean, we've talked before about the problem of you can't be the world's second largest economy and export your way to rapid growth. It's yeah. just too big. But in addition to that, many exporters in China are exporting things which are assembled with imported goods. The cost of those just went up. So each one of these things has kind of uh, run some risk of blowback. And in particular, there's concern about dropping the reserve requirements at banks because yeah. Chinese banks have been through a few cycles of really being you know, badly exposed with, with, with non-performing loans. So what do we what do we see going forward then here? Well, the there are a few different tools that uh, that the the state has at their disposal that we've we've already been discussing. There's a lot of slack still left there. So on the one hand, you know they, they've dropped interest rates by a quarter percent, but still I think Jacques can correct me on this. I think at four point two five after the announcement is that right? And they'll still wind up being pretty high real interest rates. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So the interest rate, the real interest rates are are relatively high, much higher of course than than we see in the United States. Um, the uh, uh, the uh, currency uh, interventions are interesting because there is a question not just on the on the uh, distributive aspects and consequences for Chinese businesses that are exporting and importing, as Jacques said, but also a question about the credibility of the government and especially the People's Bank of China mm -hmm. to maintain their ability to not inflate their way out of a uh, out of a recession or use these tools for something other than uh, what they called the uh, an adjustment to reflect market conditions. So right now, in order to combat that, which is exactly what happened, is they adjust they devalued the currency uh, by two percent, and markets said we'll take you there and go. 100% further, and so yeah. it dropped about 4%, uh, then the People's Bank of China had to intervene again. And now they've got about $3.5 trillion worth of U.S.-denominated uh, assets that they can sell uh, and then buy uh, the yuan again, back again. But again, how long will that last? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, $3.6 trillion, but well before they, they <laughs> evaluate, they, they, uh, they go through those resources, uh, we would see a dramatic panic about the ability of, uh, of the state to maintain uh, that place. Now, one thing that's really important to note on the reserve requirements is that's actually pretty unconventional, especially to come at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, 
So normally you would see, and then just in the conventional toolkit of, of central bankers of the last 50 years, is so long as there's slack in the interest rates, you go through that, you chew through monetary policy as opposed to regulatory policy. And one of the reasons for this is that it introduces dramatic financial instability mm -hmm. by reducing the reserve requirements for these banks. I mean, what the reserve requirements are doing is effectively a different kind of deposit insurance for uh, individuals and corporations to say, we have confidence in the banks to be able to redeem our deposits because they've got both deposit insurance and these reserve requirements. So we know that they're not getting too reckless. So what the, what the government is trying to do is goose the banks to injecting more liquidity into the system without getting too reckless. Because as yeah. soon as the financial system goes down, then uh, the, 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 some of the, the recession issues, are we at 7% or slightly below it, uh, will, be, will be pretty benign. So there is, uh, there is that kind of level, that, that kind of tipping point in terms of the liquidity levels you want to push back in, uh, as, you, as you both have said, because of how the banks have had kind of an up and down run uh, over the last couple of years, I guess, ha have they reached that point where, you know, they, they don't want to go any farther with those reserve requirements at this point? That's well, it's difficult to say. I mean, the reserve requirements that they're trying to do, uh, I've, I've read two reports, and Jacques, you can, you can tell us exactly what's going on in, inside China with that. that. One is that this is going to be uniformly applied to all of the so-called policy banks. Others, it's that it's more targeted yeah. for those specific banks that lend to uh, uh, those businesses that are seen as the engines of, of consumption and innovation. Uh, the amounts we're talking about here, about $100 billion, it's yeah. a lot. I mean, it's meant to have an influence, of course, and an impact. Um, but I think that there, and, and I've, from what I'm reading in, in, the, in the press, that the, the central bankers and the experts who advise them, all of whom have been educated in the same circles as Western sure. central bankers, recognize how unusual and even dangerous it is to, to be pulling on these levers very hard simultaneously. Yeah, and I think there's a, you know, everybody has sort of the hangover of history, right? And so sure. in China, you've got particularly high sensitivity to uh, upward inflation. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, China had ruinous inflation before the current regime started, and they've shown a pretty skittish response to uh, spikes in inflation in the many years since. And the other is the concerns with having, with having banks be overexposed with badly performing loans. I mean, they have an experience of having to recapitalize the banks. It wasn't that long ago they had mm -hmm. to do that before they sent some of them out to the markets where people now hold shares um, in, in a big way. Been some of the biggest IPOs in history have been the Chinese state-linked banks. And you add to that this concern that a lot of lending from these banks is not really done entirely on credit risk basis. There's a lot of uh, sort of preferential lending to sure. state enterprises, yep. some of which perform well, some of which don't. Uh, but so you've got to worry that there's been a lot of real estate speculation. There are a lot of uh, loans that can go to bad places. And when you've lowered the reserve requirements and those loans start going bad, then you can have a real problem. So I think there is the, the, the fact that they're turning to this, I think, you know, who knows? I don't get invited to these meetings. <laughs> but, Maybe but, you should at this point. <laughs> I, I, boy, I don't want responsibility for that. <laughs> I like being able to sit on the sidelines and carp. <laughs> but the, you know, but but there, I think the fact that they are willing to go to areas where they have been burned before and where they know it's sensitive if it goes wrong suggests that there's a real concern there. I can I can see Jacques on the sideline with a hot dog and a beer, just letting, <laughs> just letting everybody else go at it. Well, I I would uh, I'd also like to be on that sideline. And, 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 and as a as a financial historian, I'm in deeply intrigued by uh, the recapitalization that we saw. This is about 11, 12 years ago mm -hmm. that Jacques was talking about. And who led that? But Governor Zhou, who is now the governor of the People's Bank of, uh, of China, mm -hmm. and not as the central banker, but in his capacity as the head of a development bank. I'm not sure of the, of the specific details, but in terms of biography, 
the 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 Chinese central bank is going in with its eyes wide open. They know exactly what risks can be run with uh, a failure of their banks and their banking system. They wagered a lot on the recapitalization and the foreign issuance of equity uh, for for its banks uh, or the domestic issuance of equity with foreign uh, uh, involvement. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, playing with these levers is something that is th- that they're doing, and it's 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 got to be a calculated risk. What I don't understand, maybe Jacques can explain, is why take it at all? Why not Why not do as the Fed did, which is uh, go galloping toward the zero lower bound? Um, as opposed to using these regular regulatory tools that, uh, as they say, you know, in the, to to quote the great Ben Bernanke, is like performing brain surgery with a <laughs> with a sledgehammer. When you use these kinds of big uh, of big broad tools with so many different kinds of consequences, um, in the face of what seems to be when you're at four four and a half percent interest rates to be kind of a standard response, just ride this out, drop interest rates until things mm-hmm. stabilize. Yeah, I mean, it is hard to fathom in some ways. I mean, Zhou Xiaotan is, is widely respected as a very capable yeah. character, and China's had really some quite uh, impressively uh, savvy uh, people doing economic policy. I mean, yeah. Zhu Rongji, the former premier who orchestrated a wave of reforms and entering the WTO, all of that. Mm-hmm. So there's there's been some some good stuff going on. What, what marks the current period, I think, is just there's almost a, 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 a sort of all policy tools at once, and there doesn't seem to be a great deal of, of coherence. So we see you know, pushing on all these levers uh, without an obvious prioritization, and we see the sort of hitting the gas and the brakes alternately, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so you see this real ambivalence. You see things like we're going to let the renminbi drop, and uh, we're going to even let it drop more when the market has it dropping below the initial uh, state-led uh, uh, intervention, but then at the same time, it appears that the that the central bank got back in, and we get statements that says we see no reason for the renminbi to drop further. You know, I mean, what <laughs> what what does one make of that? Uh, we saw in the stock market several months ago, uh, essentially a cheering section from the government saying everybody should pile into stocks. The bull market isn't done yet. Yeah. Uh, and then all of a sudden, <clears throat> the bottom starts falling out. They intervene and say stop selling shares, you know, buy up shares and 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 keep things afloat, even turning to enterprises to do that. And then yet now we're seeing. Uh, a willingness to let the market drop pretty precipitously. So I think there's a there's a lot of ambivalence there, and some of this is bound up with bigger policy issues. I mean, yeah. part of the devaluation uh, of the renminbi was uh, a part of China's quest to have the currency become an international reserve currency. Uh, that means going to markets, um, but yeah. it has left us all scratching our heads about how exactly to interpret that, because it could be that this is, as advertised from the Chinese side, a move to let markets set the rate for the renminbi. Um, On the other hand, it comes at a moment when letting the market set means a fall, not a rise, and that's seen as an export-goosing move, and the political blowback in the U.S. is it's once again China trying to... uh, trying to uh, manipulate get, yeah, to get out of a problem by goosing exports by manipulating yep. its currency and you know it's a fundamentally ambiguous signal and I think one of the things that's causing so much concern right now is that it's very hard to read what the strategy is and how zealous uh, the people in, in charge in China will be in sticking with any one strategy well the interesting thing is when you look at the numbers uh, on the market in Shanghai I, I went back and, and looked at them this morning uh, in a period of three months, we're talking about here, uh, the loss has been about 40%. Right. Uh, it was uh, you know, just shy of 5,000 was the marker uh, in late May, and we're talking about it being around 2,900 right now. So this is a significant drop, which... You know, at some point you have to say, well, you know, we need to get this stopped and get, you know, get growth going again here. 
Yeah, but on the other hand, if you look at the graph of the Shanghai stock market, it looks like uh, some criminal being interrogated on a polygraph. I mean, you know, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> it, it spikes all over the place. Um, been and, down this road before. Right. And so we've had this huge drop of 40%, but it's still above where it was when the bull run started a little over a year ago. So what do you do with that? 4.4% yeah. drop in a currency, that's huge. It's huge in a short period of time. But in a freely market-traded currency <laughs> over some you know two, three-week stretch, that wouldn't be crazy. And it's partly a devaluation because the renminbi was effectively pegged to the U.S. dollar, and the U.S. dollar has been up against everything else. So yeah. some of that loss is taking it back to a normal rate with other currencies. So there's a lot of noise here. And it, it, but you know, I think everybody agrees there are serious worries about just how, how much trouble the Chinese economy is in. Well, and let me ask you this then, because there was an interesting story in the Wall Street Journal uh, the other day that talked about uh, the auto industry in China and the fact that both GM and Volkswagen are cutting back their production uh, in that country. That, I think, in just going off of what we've seen here in the United States, that has to be kind of one kind of warning sign that maybe there is a greater concern than maybe a lot of people are thinking about. Do you agree? Well, it's certainly, uh, you know, it's the biggest car market in the world now. Yeah. Uh, and what a rising middle class does is buy cars yeah. and other things. Indeed, try getting across town in Beijing or Shanghai, and you'll, uh, you'll appreciate how many cars there <laughs> Unless are. Unless you got a good bicycle. Or a helicopter or a jetpack or yeah. something. <laughs> yeah. um, but the, you know, I think it is a piece of the bigger story, which is the long-term strategy that China's leaders committed themselves to, especially when the Xi Jinping, you know, the current group of leaders came in about three years ago, was to shift from a reliance on exports and a reliance on infrastructure investment to a reliance on consumers. The idea was mm. to rebalance the economy to something more sustainable. These are bad signs for the consumer-driven part of the economy. Yeah. Yeah. Or they're expected signs. I mean, we see uh, throughout history that there's a business cycle that follows kind of a sinusoidal curve. And mm -hmm. uh, uh, you hear anytime you're riding the peak that the business cycle has been tamed, that changes in productivity or technology means that we don't have to face downturns. Yeah. Um, you don't hear a lot of that in the, in the U.S. Uh, after the financial crisis. But one of the most remar remarkable things about the Chinese economy is how insulated it was from the global financial crisis sure. and, yeah. and how from a Chinese perspective, but also from many other perspectives, uh, you see this idea of like we've figured something out that the West has not. We've been <laughs> playing catch up and yeah. following the leader. And now we are the leader because we didn't do what they did. And I think this this is part of the foment that gets uh, uh, so many people on on the on the U.S. political side so suspicious, so angry, so antsy about you know Chinese uh, imports or or currency manipulations. Is this idea? Well, maybe maybe you know China owns our debt and they'll be our economic overlords or something like that. And this kind of this this shows us that there is a normalcy to uh, the, the economic uh, progression uh, in China as there has been elsewhere, that sometimes things go up and sometimes they go down. Right. And here there's a tie-in to the stock market in, in terms of short-term drop in consumer demand. That is, it's a, mop, it's a mom and pop stock market. I mean, a lot of very sure. small investors, yep. people are leveraged, you know, they bought, they borrowed to, to buy shares and that. So the at least perceived wealth effect is, is quite significant mm -hmm. for a lot of those consumers. And that, that may explain uh, the sharp downturn in some consumer purchases. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. Dan Loney here with you in the studio, joined by Peter Connie Brown, uh, Wharton uh, Assistant Professor of Legal Studies and Business Ethics, and also Jacques Delisle, who is the director of the Center for East Asian studies here at the University of Pennsylvania. I, I guess then, in some respects, getting back to what you're saying, because of, of the fact that 
maybe the Chinese government and the markets over there felt like, well, you know, the U.S. went through its economic issues. Europe is kind of going through its as well. We were kind of the smart one in doing it this way. Are they maybe in some respects uh, in a negative role playing catch up uh, in terms of their downturn right now? Uh, that, that could be. I think that you know one of the one of the interesting institutional aspects of China for um, central banking scholars and 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 outside observers is trying to figure out exactly what the institutional arrangement is. Yeah. So one of the ways that that China was playing quote unquote catch up, and this is something that happened throughout the world in uh, in the eighties and nineties, was this idea: we need an independent monetary policy, mm-hmm. an independent central bank. Now, uh, independence in the central banking context can mean many different things, and sometimes it's a bit overdetermined. But the basic idea is that we'll have a monetary policy that's determined by economic fundamentals uh, voted on by a committee of experts, Mm -hmm. that the political goosing of the economy just in time for an election or to appease voters won't be the driving policy. Now, in, in China, with, uh, with Governor Zhou, uh, who has, again, as Jacques was saying, has got a, a really sterling international expert, uh, reputation, that was seen as nobody, nobody thought that the People's Bank of China was fully independent of the Communist Party, but they mm-hmm. did see in their staff and advisors, well, this is an expert outfit, and so they are managing the currency in a way that you would be, seem familiar to the West. The question now, with the last few weeks, is, is in fact, it is, is Joe's and other, uh, other uh, central bankers there, uh, is their expertise enough? Mm-hmm. Or is this simply what we had seen in in uh, monetary policy in, in Soviet Russia or other planned economies, where there is, it's not about economic fundamentals? As right. Jacques was saying yeah. earlier, it's about you know favoring different pieces of the economy, trying to keep voters uh, in line and pleased with economic developments, rather than looking at the sort of standard leaning against the wind, whichever way the wind is blowing, which is kind of a mantra of central bankers. But the other interesting thing, going back to Jacques, what you were saying, pulling off of that a second ago, is the fact that you've got an economy right now that they would like to see it driven by the consumer, but you're still talking about a country that still does need to have a, a massive amount of infrastructure improvement over the next you know decade or two. So in some respects, it, it doesn't feel like maybe they're they're at that right balancing point between the two at this at this juncture. Yeah, I mean, there, there are a couple pieces to the story. I mean, basically, the Chinese economy has been a story of export-led growth, which has been fading over time. Uh, partly because of the things we've talked about, there are limits to export strategies, export-led strategies for big economies. It's been partly investment in infrastructure, and China needs a huge amount of infrastructure. Yep. I mean, the U.S. and China are at opposite ends of the spectrum and how much we're putting into this kind of thing, and China's obviously at a different phase. And then there's consumption. Um, so, yes, there's a lot to be done on, on investment in infrastructure, but some of that's been wasteful. Um, and yeah. there are reasons for that. It's a big sprawling system. It's hard to monitor it. Local officials are judged on how the local economy is doing, kind of local GDP, and you yeah. get credit for building something. And by the time it's clear nobody's using it, you've moved on to another job. Uh, you know, so there are these kinds of, of problems, and there's sweetheart deals with infrastructure projects too. And some of them have been shoddily built. We've had crashes, all that kind of story. But there are, you know, in, it's a problem in all systems, and there are, there are special features of the Chinese bureaucratic structure that create incentives for, or at least fail to create sufficient disincentives for wasteful investment. So a lot of this does end up being a, a, a governmental change of philosophy that they need to have now and going forward over the next you know, couple of decades to try and right some of these issues. I mean, that's what we would say on the outside, eating our hot dogs and, uh, yeah. and, and uh, <laughs> waiting for signals. But that's just the thing. I mean, so the, the, the economic policy planning process within the, the Chinese state 
is so inscrutable and it's so hard to determine. It's so hard even to get really accurate data that you can say, well, you know, this is exactly what's happening. Yeah. Uh, and so, the you know, as, as we sit here today, can we say that the, uh, the PBOC's policy is motivated by kind of the standard central banking model? You know, we can't say that. We don't know that. Or can yeah. we say that it's absolutely not, that they're completely under the thumb of the Communist Party and they're just going to inflate their way to prosperity and wreck their currency? We cannot say that either. So what is it? Well, we don't know. I mean, this is this is the thing that makes you know studying central banking and looking at China, uh, but so exciting <laughs> and so vexing. Yeah, I just sort of following on that, I'd say a couple of things. The problem is there are a bunch of different stories that make sense of the limited facts we have. Mm-hmm. One story is they have inside information that they're in a lot more trouble than we know they are, sure. and this is why we see this all hands on deck and somewhat uh, scattered response. Uh, secondly, they just, just may be very skittish. They may not have gotten accustomed to the idea that, you know, the economy is a bumpy ride. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as you decontrol, there are going to be some ugly bumps. And, you know, how much do you worry about them? They may be overly worried. Um, it may be that they are just control freaks, right? That temperamentally, they're not yet ready to let go of a lot of this. Yeah. But the problem is we can't really suss that out. And there are a couple pieces of the story that I think add to the opacity. One is that we had seen a very strong policy commitment to make the market the fundamental driver of decisions. That was the big announcement from the third plenum of the 18th Central Committee a couple of years ago. And the question was, why weren't we seeing more in terms of legal reform and policy for reform to implement that? But people were kind of patient, getting a little impatient maybe. And now you see the kind of reaction to bad news that calls into question some of that commitment, the Uh ambiguity of how you read the devaluation and such. The other thing is, What I think most China watchers had not predicted when the new leadership came to power a few years ago was that we would have so strong a singular top leader in Xi Jinping. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's not Mao Zedong. He may not even be Deng Xiaoping, but he's much more powerful individually than his immediate predecessors the last two rounds had been. And so a lot of power has been taken out of the, you know, the sort of big decision-making power has been taken out of the hands of the bureaucracy and the specialists and into these small groups, which Mm -hmm. are much more opaque and potentially much more political. Now, they may reach the same conclusions, but it's harder for us to suss out that that's what they're doing. And so then a lot of that is part and parcel with some of the reaction we saw on the markets the last couple of trading days because of the fact we just don't know and there's really no good way to gauge, at least right now, exactly what their plan is. I think that's right, especially when you see a a passel of policy initiatives that aren't entirely consistent with one another and, and, and yeah. statements that don't fully track them either. I think they're trying to figure it out. And like I said, I'm glad I don't have their job. <laughs> yeah. And I would say the only other thing to add here is to, to return back to where we began. I've, we've been talking about you know, how the, the People's Bank is responding with kind of a standard mm-hmm. set of tools or had been uh, with a standard set of tools. Mm-hmm. But it, that's actually incorrect in one fundamental way. They're still growing at 7%, right? So the standard tool is when you slip into a recession, negative growth, when you're no longer growing, this is the way that you get back on the positive side of the ledger. So in this respect, as in many others in in economic planning within the Chinese state, they are mouthing the words of sort of your standard package of, of economic policy tools, but applying them in a very different paradigm. And the question is... Does the paradigm fit the the? Uh, can you make that kind of of translation? Uh, and it looks like you can't, uh, uh, at least not perfectly. But the nice thing is we can just sit here, eat our hot dogs, and relax, <laughs> and let everybody else handle. All I also this. want Jacques' jetpack that he was talking about. <laughs> exactly, well, that's not bad either. <laughs> In China, seven percent is zero percent. That is, that's the political line. Yeah, uh, fascinating. Great to have you both. Thank you very much for coming in. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.